and dismiss our children as well downstairs. What a song to sing together. It's good to just remind ourselves of that truth, right? Our sins are many, but His mercy is more. Trust that's an encouragement to you this morning. At least in its current form, the sexual revolution within our culture demands unrestrained sexual freedom. The sexual revolution says this, this is my body. You've heard the phrase body autonomy, or maybe now even in its transition into body integrity, which promotes self-determination over one's own body without external domination. It emphasizes the importance of personal autonomy, self-ownership, and the self-determination of human beings over their own bodies. This is my body. It also says, this is my identity. Psych Central says the following. A person's sexual orientation and their gender identity are a natural part of who they are. Neither can be changed without persuasion. I'm sorry. Neither can be changed with persuasion, therapy, or medical treatment. It goes on to say, sexual orientation isn't a phase. It's the way that person is. It's an innate aspect of them that's been a part of them since before they were born. The sexual revolution says, this is my body. It says, this is my identity. The sexual revolution of our day concludes, no one has the right or the authority to put any restraints on my body and its physical desires or my identity. Kate Cohen is a columnist for the Washington Post. She was uh, observing that uh, many uh, people in the state of New York, uh, specifically women, would go to what is often a Catholic hospital. You think of many of the hospitals in uh, the United States, many of them are, are Roman Catholic with certain convictions and, and theological beliefs that undergird and actually uh, inspired the mission of the hospital. And she was saying that it was a tragedy that women would be subject to going to these hospitals that have uh, sayings on the walls like the promotion of God's will in health care. And she concludes her article by saying, I don't want your God in charge of my health care. Why such demand for unrestrained sexual freedom? Why such individualized 
sexual expression is because the sexual revolution in our culture today views sex as this. Sex exists for me to satisfy my desires, express my identity, and pursue my personal happiness. New York Times article in August 2022, Nona Arwinick says this. She's reflecting on feminism and sexuality. She's critiquing the traditional ethic and framework that has, in her opinion, been sexually oppressive to women. She says this. The purpose of sex is pursuing desire on one's own terms. So because of this, are we to be surprised that sexuality and identity now has its own alphabet? When governed by desires and individualized preferences, there is no limit to the sexual designations or preferences that people have. When body autonomy and individual sexual expression is treasured above all else, anything that stands in the way of that and postures itself as a binding sexual ethic, that is by all means going to be understood as oppressive. It's oppressive. And so with all that, we come to the question that we have this week in our series, Questioning Christianity. How can God limit a person's sexual freedom? Last week, we looked at what was considered to be the most difficult question concerning hell. And now we see the most controversial question, at least in our day. How could God limit a person's sexual freedom. And in some ways, even the question highlights a contrast of worldviews. We have the worldview that puts self and self-expression and identity as sexuality as a main, right at the center of its worldview. And yet at the same time, that question is asked to a Christian who has a Christian worldview that understands sex completely different, that puts something and someone else at the center of its understanding of reality and meaning. So today, we're going to take a look at this question. We're going to answer this question. Again, I think with conviction, but also, I would hope, with compassion. Amen? I mean... If there's anything that is true is that we are a sexualized world. And we are victims of a, of a sexualized, sex-driven culture. Many of us are, are in this room in some way, shape, or form, if not all of us, are wrestling with sexual sin in a constant basis in some way, shape, or form. And so while we want to approach this with conviction, I think it's equally important for us to approach this topic and this question with a pastoral care and love and compassion for one another in this room and also for the people that live in our day. Can we do that together? 
please get a Bible. Uh, grab that bad boy. Let's open it up. We went from 13 verses down to 8 last week. Okay? I went from like 275 down to 4 this week. Okay? So I'm getting better at conciseness, even though I'm probably going to preach till 3. All right? So please, uh, bear with me. Let's pray together, and we're going to dive in. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to open up there and be ready for that, that would be great. Father, we come to you in Christ's name. We ask that your spirit would be at work in the hearts of the men and women and the young people in this room. Lord, would you be glorified in us? Would you shape our mind? Would you shape our heart? Would you shape our lives by your spirit? Apply the word, uh, your word, to our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The sexual revolution in our culture today demands unrestrained sexual freedom. That's the point we've made. That's what undergirds the question, how can God limit one's sexual freedom? But the Christian worldview and Christianity promotes true sexual freedom within a framework of God's design. And so that's what I want to unpackage for you ever so briefly, ever so insufficiently today. I'm going to unpackage for you, I hope, uh, a Christian ethic, a Christianity that promotes true sexual freedom within a framework of God's design. And of course, when we start to think about the purpose of anything, the, the meaning of anything, to gain a sense of reality about anything that we're looking at, of course, the most basic place to start is to go to the opening pages of the Bible. It's in the opening chapters of the Bible that we get a sense of the design of God and the wisdom of God and the handiwork of God of who He is and what He was accomplishing and purposing in creation. So we see Genesis 1 that He creates everything, right? Even at the end of Genesis 1, we see that as the pinnacle of God's creation, He creates man and woman in His image. There's never been a passage uh, that, that underscores gender equality Guess what? It is Genesis chapter 1. God creates man and woman in His image. Equal. And He blesses them. And He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And so there's this command, this expectation, that these two would, uh, being blessed by God, would be fruitful and they'd multiply. Part of the creation mandate was to procreate. How would that happen in the context of marriage? A one-flesh covenant union between a man and a woman. That's what Christianity teaches. That God made marriage a one-flesh covenant union between one man and one woman. And so let's read that together. Genesis 2, 18-25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, glossing over this, but pointing, I think, importantly to the reality that at the, uh, the origin of the world in which we live, in His creative purposes, God made marriage. Right? He made marriage, and He made man and woman, and He brought them together in a one-flesh covenant union between one man and one woman. We see, verse 18, it's not good for a man to be alone. There was a helper. Uh, there, uh, I will make a helper fit for him. And so God makes a woman and brings it to the man. And He calls her woman. And we see verse 24, Therefore this man leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife, and they shall be called one flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. When we look to sexuality and we look to marriage and the framework within which true freedom is understood and enjoyed, we look to the Bible and it shows us right from the beginning what God's creative intention and design was. Christianity teaches that God made men and women and He made marriage as a one flesh covenant union between them. The second thing Christianity teaches is that God designed sex to be enjoyed solely within the context of that marriage covenant. God, Christianity, is pro-sex. I said it. So often, Christianity is seen as crude and anti-sex. But we see that actually, the Bible says that God created it. And He created the relationship within which that activity was to be enjoyed. Sex is to be received as a gift from God, enjoyed in the context of a loyal, loving relationship known as marriage between one man and one woman. Skipping four million verses, look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1-5 with me to underscore this reality. Because verse 1 gets at, actually, a teaching that can be false even within the church. That sex is bad. It's not good. And Paul's addressing this in 1 Corinthians 7, 1-5. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and this is what they said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is what he says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, 
That's in conflict with society, isn't it? Oh, but not just the wife. Look at this. And likewise, I'm sorry, for the and but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse five: Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, Paul understands the temptations of the day. Paul understands the way in which God has made men and women. Paul understands the lure of sexual immorality. But he also understands the creative design that God has crafted in marriage. But yes, men, have a wife. Women, have a husband. Give yourself to each other. Serve one another. Do not deprive one another. Have you ever heard of that one another language before in the New Testament? One anothering is that language that kind of uh, defines and, 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 and um, um, points the church down a path to what biblical relationships look like. And so we even see in a marriage that there's a, there's a certain one anothering taking place. By all means, in every aspect, not just physically, but even so, we understand that the physical sexual experience within a marriage is a one anothering. That actually, sex within a marriage is a way to serve another person. That it's not ultimately about you. That in God's design and in under His 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 uh, in, in the way in, in His will, He is designing sex to be the purpose of procreation, be fruitful and multiply, for the purpose of serving one another and providing a holy context for joy and physical union and all of that. So, right here we see that sex is not really about you and your desires and your needs, but it's ultimately for God, it's from God, and it's for the good and joy of of your spouse. Imagine if we approached sex and sex sexuality with that in mind. How different that might make our experience and our joy within the context of our marriage. But the bottom line is, God made marriage, God made sex, and He did so for it to be enjoyed within the context of a one flesh covenant union between a husband and a wife. And God is for sure for that. Right? Song of Solomon, by all means, is a an example of that particular experience. Right? Verse 1 of chapter 5. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. God's designed it for His glory. He's designed it for His creative purposes. He's designed it so that a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, in the context of covenant love and loyalty, can serve one another. And enjoy it. Be drunk with love. Did you know that's what Christianity taught? Seems like the narrative out there is telling us something different. What we see here is true freedom. True freedom is set within a framework of God's design. And so when we interact with the cultural uh, sexual revolution that says that this is what sex is, it's for me, it's about me, 
it's for my happiness, it's for my pleasure, without any reference to outside determination. It's all about body autonomy. That comes in direct conflict with what we believe the Bible teaches. And actually, it comes in direct conflict with what true freedom really is. Imagine freedom without any framework. Imagine a world of sexual anarchy. Imagine a world without any sexual restraint. And if you really push people, there's always some kind of boundary, some kind of restraint. I mean, we're not for pedophilia, are we? There's always some sort of line. There's always some sort of framework. And so what we recognize is any notion of unlimited, unrestrained sexual freedom that is an innate right of every individual is absolutely destructive for people, bodies, and relationships. And if you want to know true sexual freedom, God has provided a creative framework for us to enjoy it for His glory, for our good, and more importantly, I'll say, for the good of somebody else. Amen? Christianity promotes true freedom, true sexual freedom within a framework of His design. It says sex exists for the glory of God and for the joy of another. It's not in the way of freedom. It actually promotes freedom, right? Galatians 5.13 is a verse that kind of opens our eyes to the nature of true freedom. You are free, Paul says, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love what? Serve one another. Right? That's freedom. It's not unrestrained. It doesn't give us an opportunity to just give in to every desire and indulgence that we have, regardless of how it impacts others. No, our freedom is one that's enjoyed within a framework. And that kind of freedom, particularly sexually, is one that looks to serve one another. And when it comes to sex, the one another is our spouse. That's freedom. Anything else the Scriptures teach is a denial, is a distortion, and is a deviation from true freedom and the will of God for sexuality. That's really what I want to teach today. The Christianity promotes sexual freedom, true sexual freedom, within the framework of God's design. Amen? We, the church, know that. We understand that. And some of us may be sitting there thinking, well, this isn't news. Right? This is, duh. And yet, I think it's actually equally important as we consider what we believe and the boldness and the conviction that we uh, teach that and proclaim that to people in our life. I think it's really important for us to approach this with a lot uh, of uh, care. And it's not just what we say to a world about this, but I think it's also important how we say it. And I want to just talk a little bit about this. That as the church, as we live out and promote a biblical sexual ethic together, we must do so in at least three ways. And I want to give that to you today. As we live and promote this biblical sexuality, we must do so in a way that, number one, humbly hold out gospel hope. Don't miss this preposition. 
with struggling sinners. I made that change this morning. It's easy maybe to hold out hope for gospel or for struggling sinners. It's easy maybe to say, hey, this is what you need. But actually, it's what we need. And I think in some ways, that underscores the word humbly in this word. I don't know if we as the church have approached the world in which we live with a humility that is holding out hope with struggling sinners. Right? We read that verse in 1 Corinthians 6, right? In such were some of you. That whole list of, of uh, struggles and sins. It's easy for us on this side of coming to know Jesus to look at the world and to get disgusted, to get frustrated, to think we've got it figured out, and to look in pride and with haughtiness on those people that are living in their sins and forget who we were. We were once struggling in these things as well. Imagine a church that approaches a world with its convictions with humility, that can identify with the struggle with sexual sin, that can confess past struggles, even current struggles, that can look a person in the eye and say, hey, I understand the temptation and the struggle. I know what it's like to deal with same-sex attraction. I know what it's like to engage in premarital sexual activity. I know what it's like to deal with lust. I understand the difficulty of our pornographic society. I'm with you in this. Imagine if we could hold out the hope of the gospel with humility. I think the world could potentially be more attentive to our voice and pointing them to true sexual freedom. So let's do that. Let's hold out hope to struggling sinners. Let's hold out hope to one another. That there is hope in Christ. That ultimately your identity is not shaped by your sexual orientation or your preferences. But in Jesus Christ, we have a real identity, and that's in Him. And it's finished work. Amen? That you're not defined by your struggles and your sins, but you're defined by Christ in His perfect life, death, and resurrection. And that as we embrace Him by faith, that He washes us, that He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and He transforms us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Some were such of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think we would do well to live and proclaim a biblical sexuality with humility. Humility. Holding out the hope of the Gospel with struggling sinners. But number two, I think we must live and promote biblical sexuality in a way that faithfully pursues sexual purity. God's grace forgives. Amen? God's grace washes. God's grace justifies. But let's not miss that that 
forgiving, pardoning, justifying grace also sanctifies them. Amen? What that means is this. That in time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who embrace Christ by faith are those who increasingly and progressively conform to the image of Christ, particularly in their sexuality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-7. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me or follow along on the screen. Look at what Paul says as he encourages the Thessalonians to pursue sexual purity. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God. So what does God want from you? Here it is. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. That just simply means that you're increasingly, progressively, becoming more like Jesus in thought, word, and deed. You're becoming like Jesus. You're being made holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants for you. God wants you to be holy. And holy in your sexuality. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That means don't do it. That each one of you know how to control his own body, self-control, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Christian, those justified, those who receive pardoning grace, listen to this, pursue sexual purity. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. And what needs to be sanctified in the Thessalonians and in our lives? Our sexuality. Our minds, our bodies, sex needs to be sanctified. That means abstaining from sexual immorality and all that that is. It means and involves the controlling of one's body in holiness and honor, opposed to the passion of lust among the Gentiles, among those who do not know God. All this is empowered by the Spirit, I believe he says in verse 8. See, we of our impurity daily. This is the will of the Lord. And I understand, like, for so many of us here in this room, this is such an intense battle. I stood before 25 men a couple weeks ago and, and started out with a simple confession. I said, I have a confession for this morning. Every single day I'm confronted with sexual sin in some way, shape, or form. This is a battle that I deal with all the time. And you could feel in the room, like, whoa, being honest, I think in some ways that's the one of the first steps in progressing and, and just being honest about it and, and coming clean and being vulnerable and saying, hey, this is a struggle that we have. And I think all of us in this room would do well to just look at one another and say, hey, this is an intense battle that we're in in a sexualized society that is where Satan is always at work coming to steal, kill, and destroy. He starts in the mind. He wants to lead to action. He wants to ruin families. He wants to ruin marriages. 
He wants to ruin our public witness in the world as we proclaim a biblical sexuality and also continue to, to struggle with sexual sins. He wants to show some kind of disconnect with our profession and our lives. There's a lot at stake. This is a real struggle for us. My encouragement to you is confess your sin. Find someone, confess it to Christ. Bring it to Him. Bring it to His feet. Receive grace in the process. Maybe find a close friend to share. I'm struggling. I need help. Lean into the grace of the body of Christ. Be accountable. Because Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes that we may have life. Amen? We find life in the body of Christ, in confession of sin, in receiving pardon, in resting in God's promises, in fighting temptation. And we fight temptation with the Word of God. That is the weapon by which we fight temptation. We've put a resource on these seats that can help that. So pick up one near you, maybe a one uh, per couple, pick up one or whoever. Just if you, need, if you need more, we'll find it. The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality, super helpful. Why? Because it gets us in the Word. It, con- it defines and articulates good doctrine around sexuality. It's all-encompassing. I believe there's 41 questions. It gets at everything that we're dealing with right now in society and in our lives. So read it. Use it. Do battle. Fight. Pursue Christ. Pursue purity. Really, you're trusting the Spirit of God to help you to enjoy uh, sexuality in the context of His creative and design and His framework. That's where true freedom is. So faithfully pursue sexual purity. This is the will of the Lord for you. Amen? And last, I think it's important that we live and proclaim this sexual ethic by loving people who disagree with us. Scott Saul says this, we must resist the inner Pharisee. I was thinking, where do we, where do we act like a Pharisee? Maybe online? Maybe in relation to fallen leaders that we see disqualified from pastoral ministry? Where does that inner Pharisee that feels good about oneself and projects pride and disgust toward others? Where is that in us? He says we must resist the inner Pharisee whose instinct is to scornfully separate from a sexually damaged world. Compelled by the love of Christ, we must extend kindness and friendship to those who don't embrace a biblical sexual ethic. And we must never engage in negative posturing and caricature. Christians then have an opportunity to stand out as a gracious, life-giving minority in this regard. This entails staying true to the biblical text. We don't compromise what we believe the Bible teaches. Amen? However, also genuinely loving, listening to, and serving those who don't share our beliefs. Maybe build a friendship, a relationship with someone that believes completely different or even practices different. Many of you may be aware of 
Rosaria Butterfield in her testimony. I believe it uh, was a book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a professor at Syracuse University, and she was a lesbian. She was trying to write an article critiquing the religious right. She was kind of going after promise keepers at the time, and all that uh, perceived silliness in her mind. And um, she found herself in a friendship with a local pastor downtown Syracuse. This was 20 plus years ago. And slowly through relationship, she came to faith in Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. This is what she said. As she engaged this pastor and as she engaged this church, I learned that there were other people in my church who struggled with sexual sin, with lust, and with faithfulness. And they told me that. Humbly holding out hope with struggling sinners. They took the risk of no longer looking all cleaned up to me. She says, they didn't share the gospel, saying something like, okay, there's someone who clearly needs the gospel. Let's make sure we get these points in before she leaves our house tonight. They seemed more interested in having a long relationship with me. Loving people who disagree. Befriending people who disagree. When I said, look at all these hurting people, nobody said, serves them right, boy. They're all a bunch of sinners. Instead, people in the church rolled up their sleeves and said, okay, how can we help? How can we get to know you better? It was that loving care, that friendship. It was that humility. It was that patience. All of which God used to draw an unlikely convert to faith. She even records how she had to let go of her natural inclination. Now she's married uh, to a man. And it's just a powerful story of what love and grace and humility and yet truth and how God can use us even as we hold to a strong biblical sexual ethic at the very same time, care for and love and walk with fellow strugglers in our world, pointing them to the hope of Jesus Christ, to pointing them to the, to the real freedom that is to be known and enjoyed and experienced in the context of a one-flesh covenant woman between a man and a woman. Christian, let's commit ourselves to these things. Amen? Let's commit ourselves to these things in the glory of God and for the joy of others. Let's humbly hold out hope for those who are struggling with sexual sin. Let's be faithful to pursue sexual purity. And let's love and befriend people in this world who disagree with us. Can we do that, Renovation Church? Married men and women, enjoy true sexual freedom in your marriage. Serve each other. Give yourself to each other. Do not deprive each other. Have children. Raise up disciples. Abstain from lust and sexual activity outside of your marriage. 
Do not commit adultery physically or mentally. See your whole marriage as a symbol of Christ and His church, a loving, loyal union and display of covenant-keeping grace. And parents, let your marriage be an example to your children that shapes their view of sex and relationships. Maybe walk with them through that resource that's on your seat. Teach them. Discipling. Shape this within them. Point them to true freedom. Because culture's pulling them away. Singles, God has a unique grace for you in this. It may seem hard to hear. I understand that completely. But He has a unique grace for you. If you look at the Bible, sex is good. Marriage is good. Even the Scriptures, singleness is good. It's a better name than sons and daughters. Right? God is not abandoned you. You're not defined by your desires and your passions or your sexuality or lack thereof. You're defined by something so much more. You're defined by Jesus. Just like married people. They're defined by Jesus. You're defined by Jesus. You are known and you're loved infinitely by God in Jesus Christ. I mean, I think about what what do people really want? They want to be known. They want to be loved unconditionally. Singles, you're known and loved unconditionally in Jesus Christ. So stay pure. Fight for holiness. Rest in your Savior. Give your lives to serving Christ and His church and patiently pursue a Christian spouse as you wait for God to person and to find them. Teenagers. Teenagers. Develop a vision so much grander than the false vision that this society is selling you. Don't believe the lies of Satan. See the glory of God and His design for intimacy. Make a commitment to stay sexually pure until you're married. Seek wisdom and accountability from parents and other Christians who love you and are leading you to Christ. That's all I got. <laughs> Christianity promotes true freedom within the framework of God's design. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, how it shapes and guides our view of reality. It gives us the truth. We thank you for your word. It also reminds us of your infinite grace. Lord, I pray for every person in this room. This applies to all of us so powerfully. I pray that we would look to you in our sexual sins and struggles and run into your arms for grace and for freedom. Pray as well that you would give us strength as we face the difficulties and temptation that exist in this world. I pray that your spirit would strengthen us when we are weak and purify us where we are sinful. That you would conform us to the image of Christ.
We pray as well that You would use us in this world for Your glory. Help us to come alongside those in our world that are beaten and broken and struggling and weary and just hurting inside. Pray that we would connect with them, that You would love them, that they would know the love of Christ and how we live and how we talk and the tone that we have. Give us humility. Give us grace. Help us to live faithfully as a testimony of your protection in our life. We ask these things in Christ's name. And all God's people say, Amen.